Oh my god. I was done with this episode. I literally was finished with it. I was about to publish it. And then it happened! The campaign Undertaker has claimed another victim, and it's a big one! Bye! Bye! Battle! I have never been more proud of a prediction than saying that Beto O'Rourke ran a terrible final two months to his Ted Cruz race and that it was a horrifying idea for him to run for president. Quite possibly. And we are going to delve into this next week. Trust me. This might be the worst run campaign of all time. By the money. It might be the biggest waste of money in political history. Honestly, that dude had so much cash. And here's the real legacy. Here's the sad part. He doesn't even get to November 6th. The day, the anniversary of Beyonce endorsing him for Senate. You've got to be kidding me. All right, we're going to do all the numbers. We're going to dissect this on such a minute and obsessive level next week uh, uh, when I can actually do the research on it. But I had to tag this on here. Oh, my God. Beto O'Rourke is out of the 2020 race. In his tweet storm announcing it, we do not know whether or not he's going to run for Senate. I'm sure there will be a lot of pressure on him to do it. Uh, I don't know if he can. Now that he went all in on, hell yeah, we're going to take your guns. Is he even viable? So much to get in. So much to get in. Uh, 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 Donald Trump literally seconds ago. Oh, no, Beto just dropped out of the race for president despite him saying he was born for this. I don't think so. Oh. I mean, really... So much, so much. Uh, all right, here's the episode. It doesn't mention anything about Beto. Uh, here you go. The, the episode already in progress. All right, gang, thought experiment. Do me a favor and suspend your feelings about what Trump did in the Ukraine. So forget whether or not you think it's illegal, forget whether or not you think you should be impeached for it. Let's just focus on exactly what he was trying to do with the least charitable characterization of it. What Donald Trump wanted was to meddle in the 2020 election. What he wanted was for the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, to go on CNN and announce that there was an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. He then wanted an actual investigation into those two. So let's go ahead, and this is where the thought experiment comes in. Let's think of exactly how big of a story that would have been. Run through the simulation in your mind. How long would we be talking about it? 
Because my guess is that CNN sends someone to Kiev. We're talking about it for a week. We get all the same denials that anything ever happened with Burisma. And then it goes away. Sure, if Ukraine comes out with any findings, then we debate that. But short of there being any kind of international criminal punishment, which I don't even know what that would be, this story, in my mind, kind of comes and goes within three weeks. Sure, Trump will bring it up forever, but, I mean, Trump brings up everything forever. He doesn't really need an investigation to do that. I've asked you to go through that thought experiment so I can ask you this question. Functionally, is this impeachment process more damaging to the 2020 Democratic primary than anything Trump was going to do in Ukraine. Now, I've made the Biden argument before, but just for the sake of folks just tuning in, let me make it again. Since Nancy Pelosi announced that she was going to back impeachment in the House, Biden has dropped 4% in national polls. All of these are by Real Clear Politics Average, by the way. He's dropped 13% in Iowa polls, a 2% drop in New Hampshire polls. In that time, he's fallen out of first place in all of those averages, and in Iowa and New Hampshire, that is still the case. But what's more, as it seems more sure than ever that Nancy Pelosi is indeed going to impeach the president in the House, that means Harris, Booker, Warren, Bernie, and Klobuchar, five of the frontrunners, are going to have to not be on the road in Iowa and New Hampshire during the one month when they really need to be on the road in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is January. That looks to be when the Senate will be discussing whether or not to remove Donald Trump. Iowa holds their caucus on February 3rd, and New Hampshire is less than a week later. So January is prime time. And if that's the case, then they are put into a very sticky situation. Because in all likelihood, the Republicans will circle the wagons and vote to not remove the president. And if that's the case, then all five of those senators are going to be there for nothing. They're going to miss out on retail politics with the two most demanding and entitled electorates that we have in the American presidential election system. Iowa and New Hampshire voters want desperately to know each candidate personally and for those candidates to know them. They're going to miss out on that. So they can go to D.C. And granted, it's going to be a big story. They're going to get plenty of coverage. But they're not going to be talking about what they want to talk about. They're going to be talking about the president. As the trial lurches forward to a likely conclusion. So let's go back to our initial question. If the fundamental sin that we are prosecuting Trump for is meddling in an election, at what point do we wonder if the cure is meddling more than the disease? 
With all thanks to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, PX3 begins now. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the new Friday edition of the PX3 show. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a lot to get to today. Elizabeth Warren has dropped her Medicare for all plan. I'm going to give you guys the way that I assume it will be attacked. We've got some mailbag and an interview about populism. I love this interview. I think this is going to be a really great food for thought as you go into the weekend. But let's begin with Elizabeth Warren, because this was a big release today. Remember, 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 in the last debate, the way that Elizabeth Warren got damaged was on both the left and the right, people asking about her plans for Medicare for all, and specifically whether or not taxes would go up. She was very dodgy on that. So today she rolled out the plan. Now, I don't know whether or not you can read into her doing it on Friday as her being uh, excited about it or not excited about it. But you did a little tweet storm. And from that tweet storm, I'm going to point out a few things that she is going to be attacked for. Some of these have already popped up into the political echo chamber. Some have not yet. But here we go. These are the tweets. And then I will follow them up with how they are going to be picked on. Tweet number one. Here's a headline. My plan won't raise taxes one penny on middle class families. In fact, we'll return about $11 trillion to the American people. That's bigger than the biggest tax cut in our history. So this is going to be a big line for the Warren campaign. They really want to hammer this home. In fact, you can certainly say that the more people talk about $11 trillion or equating it to a tax cut, the more popular Elizabeth Warren is. That means people are buying in to that line of thinking. But if she's going to be attacked, here's how. Who's a middle-class family? Because that's something that winds up getting a little soupy on, on the left. A middle-class family is exactly who the politician pitching the big plan wants a middle-class family to be. There's no number assigned to this. And beyond that, are we sure that once we turn over the keys to our entire medical apparatus, that President Warren's definition of a middle-class family will always be like ours. By that, I mean the voting public, which, of course, means a million different things. Tweet number two. Let's get to the math, all backed up by independent experts and economists. First, we're going to rein in the waste, inefficiency, and corporate profiteering by insurance and drug companies. And we'll bring down out-of-control costs. Instead, we're going to spend more on care itself. And thanks to getting rid of all the waste in the system, we can offer top-of-the-line care for all 331 million people in the S for less than what we'll pay if we do. Nothing to fix our broken system now. You're telling me that making all doctors and hospitals government contractors will reduce fraud and waste? 
I mean, even if you're very pessimistic, and I am very pessimistic about the relationships between doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies, I believe that they drive prices up, and I think that there's ample evidence to show it. You're telling me that if it's now a government contractor relationship, that there's not going to be a little excess padding to the government? I would have assumed that that would be priced in to any Medicare deal. The fact that this is a cornerstone of why yours will work is a little troubling. And finally, tweet number three. How is it paid for? Well, if you're not in the top 1%, Wall Street, or a big corporation, congratulations. You don't pay a penny more and you're fully covered by Medicare for all. To cover the cost. We start by taking the money that employers are currently paying in the form of premiums to private insurance companies and have them pay it to Medicare instead. Whoa, 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 whoa. All this talk about big corporations footing the bill, and let's table the idea of what you consider a big corporation for a second. You're telling me that businesses who are currently paying for private insurance get no relief? From Medicare for all, that same money goes out in the form of increased taxes. That sure as hell seems like a tax increase to me. So I went and read a little bit more of her her detailed plan beyond the tweets. Here's what she says. Companies will pay 98% of what they pay for private insurance to Medicare for all. Businesses under 50 employees will be exempt. And this goes back to the fraud and waste argument saying that America buying everything as one monolith will be able to keep prices down. So whether you're skeptical of that, let's move on. 50 employees is what she is considering a small business. So I went and looked up the Small Business Administration to see what they consider a small business to be, their absolute lowest line is 250. So if you're above 250 in certain industries, you're beyond a small business. To me, that would certainly incentivize somebody to keep a business below 50 employees. Because otherwise, you are going to rapidly change your balance sheet very, very, very quickly. The idea of hiring the 51st employee would be something that you would have to think long and hard about. Or hell, if you run a business of 55 people, 65 people now, and all of a sudden you look up and Elizabeth Warren looks like she is cruising on her way to the White House, do you think about, you know, maybe making some cutbacks, trying to operate a little leaner? It's just such a huge advantage to not have to pay for health insurance, which I thought would be a part, especially in the campaign phase, would be a part of of, of her pitch is like, oh, look, uh, businesses, this is an economic stimulator. You're not going to have to pay for your employees' health insurance anymore. No, still going to have to. Now it's just going to be through the government. So these are the lines that I think she is going to be attacked on going forward. I think she's obviously going to hear from the moderates. She's going to hear from Biden. She's going to hear from Buttigieg. 
We'll see what kind of mood Kamala Harris is in now that she's cut her campaign down. But I've also seen some of Bernie Twitter today also take her to task for this. Because again, this is the one thing that Bernie is fireproof on. He's like, look, I'm going to create the most massive government program of all time. But it'll raise taxes. Yes. It'll raise your taxes a lot. It's it, There's going to be so many taxes. You're not even going to be able to think straight because you're getting taxed so much. But the value you will get out of it will be worth it. That's his pitch. We will see how this is received. But I don't know at the end if Warren is going to be in any better of a situation by the next debate than she was in the previous one. Which gets us back to that key Warren flaw. The more time she spends thinking about big sticky issues, the worse she is at them. We'll see if this is one of them. Politics! All right, friends, we are going to get to our interview with Joe Lowndes about populism in a second, but I want to remind you that you can support this show at TakePoliticsSeriously.com and please come on over to our free political newsletter at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. A big salute to our $3 club at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You guys are stronger than ever, and I thank you immensely for your support. And now, our interview. Politics! My guest today is Joe Lowndes, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon. He researches and writes on race, population, right-wing politics, and American political institutions. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Now, I wanted to have you on to talk about populism. Populism is something that after the 2016 election, uh, I specifically kind of I, I, I vowed to sort of educate myself more on two terms, populism and globalism, <laughs> because I felt that they were things that I fundamentally misunderstood uh, and that led for me to to not see the election of Donald Trump coming. So let's start at the basics, the, the, the pre-Trump world. Where does populism come from as a political force? You know, it's a it's a difficult uh, concept. You're not you know you're not alone in trying to figure out what what populism means, and I think it's actually used fairly uh, loosely by journalists and um, pundits and even uh, academics alike. Partly the the problem is that there's no specific ideology that you can connect to populism as such, and so a number of people have tried to find different ways of uh, of thinking about what it is. Is it um, um, the historian Michael Kazin has called it a, um, a durable mode of persuasion. Um, the political scientists uh, Cass Muda and uh, Cristobal Kaltwaller call it a, um, a thinly centered ideology. And uh, uh, other people kind of think of it as something as either a species of um, kind of uh, overly excited mob rule or uh, some kind of authoritarianism or uh, some kind of, uh, you know, kind of angry response from uh, from the electorate towards political elites. 
So there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways that people think about what the term even means. And then even historically, uh, historians have, have debated uh, what this what the concept has meant uh, in U.S. history and what it's meant to represent. Um, the, the great historian Richard Hofstadter in the 1950s talked about the populist movements uh, of the 19th century as being essentially backward-looking, slightly paranoid, uh, uh, nervous about uh, new immigrants coming into the country, uh, distrustful of, uh, of urbanism and of cities, and that it was kind of a you know kind of an atavistic or, or kind of a um, you know movement of, of farmers who were yearning for a more um, kind of simplistic life. Other historians and political scientists have seen that movement in the 19th century differently. That the, the 19th century populists, the, the People's Party of the 19th century, uh, which organized in the American South and the American West, um, mostly mostly farmers, but not only, uh, developed cooperatives and uh, and small political parties and forms of of um, uh, you know of information sharing, newspapers, pamphlets. Uh, they sent around uh, speakers and orators to different places to talk about uh, the ways in which uh, average people were being crushed by the the new power of the of the railroads and the steel industry and the oil industry. And so, you know, from that perspective, what the populist movement originally in the 19th century was about was um, kind of a, a people's uh, not quite a revolt, but a, a full-throated response to um, uh, control by political elites at the top. So. Really, if you're going to take anything from this, I think that in terms of a basic definition, it would be to say that populism describes the idea that there is a um, a people, a majority of the people who uh, see themselves as being uh, potentially misrepresented by uh, people in government, uh, see themselves as being controlled by elites above or sometimes by people seen as parasitic off the system below, and, um, and that they want to... Um, you know, they, they want to change things in, you know, in, 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 in an immediate sense to have more kind of control by the people. So that already makes it complicated enough. But on top of that, there is there are differences between what we talk about in terms of uh, left wing populism and right wing populism. And you raised at the beginning of the show this um, uh, Donald Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders, as, or, you, or you mentioned Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders as two figures who are often described as, as populists. And that gets into some, some key differences between uh, those two types of politics, which is another thing that, um, uh, that I think that uh, historians and political scientists talk about. Well, well but before we get into to modern times, can you give me an example of pre-2016 you know, uh, Trump and Bernie, uh, our, our modern meta of politics? What would be, in your mind, the last great, the previous great uh, uh, populist push? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, uh, in terms of kind of um, politics on the right in, in the United States, you could look back to uh, the presidential campaigns of the Alabama governor, George Wallace, uh, in 1968, um, and again in 1972, he he claimed to represent the the plain people, the common people, working people against uh, liberal elites in Washington, against bureaucrats, against liberal foundations, judges, uh, and he he what he said he was doing was was standing up for the interests of everyday people against um, people who were trying to push uh, civil rights. And such he had a racial version of this. It was that you know that 
that, that minorities and wealthy interests were colluding against everyday white Americans. And so that's, that's one example that people point to as kind of a, um, you know, a, a populist movement in American society. But if you really have to go back to, to find kind of a, a, kind of a full populist movement, uh, it would be in the, in the late 19th century. It would be in the 1880s and 1890s, again, um, where you have this you know, kind of large movement um, against um, what the, that back then they called the interests, you know, against um, against wealthy elites who are, try, who are, you know, controlling aspects of politics and the economy. So, you know, the, the populace at that time had a very strong influence on um, making political changes in, um, you know, throughout the states, the places where you have referenda uh, as a way of um, uh, making laws in states. We have it here in Oregon. You have it there in California. Mm-hmm. That was one of, um, you know, that, that was a, a result of the populist movement. They had this idea that you had to have as much direct democracy as possible. You had to have much direct uh, direct accountability and direct ability for, for everyday people to vote on and, uh, and direct government. And so that's why, you know, referenda are a way that, that people can vote statewide on an issue as opposed to having it go through a legislature. The populist saw, and often correctly so, that legislatures were, um, you know, had, uh, were often bought off by wealthy interests. Of course, the problem with, with referenda is that that can happen there as well. But uh, so that's, you know, those are some, some elements of it. Some people will say that the United States is kind of deeply populist in its own national identity, and that before you actually had the populist movement, people look at, you know, figures like Andrew Jackson as a figure of, of kind of, uh, representing uh, everyday people, common people against, um, in his case, against the uh, the Second National Bank or against the the you know what he saw as patricians in the Whig Party, uh, and, you know, and on the side of uh, of kind of uh, you know people without much means or about uh, without much education. So there is something that the Amer- Americans I think deeply love about the idea of of popular government and of government by the people. And sometimes this this will um, you know get taken up um, by leaders who say they you're going to represent you know people against the elites you, you know and it's not you, another answer to your question would have been to say Jesse Jackson's campaigns in '84 and '88 when he linked the interests of urban workers in Chicago to coal miners in Appalachia the idea that all these people had what they shared in common was it was uh, the, the fact that they uh, were you know, just trying to make a living and were um, being continually uh, thwarted by um, economic institutions and by, um, you know, by wealthy people. So that's, um, th- those are a couple of examples. And I'm trying to, kind of going back and forward across history to kind of get sure. a sense of how, how this stuff plays out. So would, would it be fair to say that at least in the narrative of these own movements, they are defined by their enemies, by the elites, by whatever forces it may be that are injuring the populace that is now fighting back. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's the way of you know. It's the it's populist. You know, every populist demand in a way is a is a protest. It's a you know, if you have people speaking in a in a populist language, it's be, it's because they have already said that people in power don't represent us. People in power um, are, are, you know, are um, standing in the way of our, um, of, of what we need and what we want. And so there's a way in which populism is always um, already 
calling for uh, changes in how things are done, which means to say that you've identified enemies, which means to say you've identified people who are, um, you know, who are either parasitic on you or controlling you, um, whether it be, you know, on the right, whether, you know, it's, it's often either liberal elites or um, pro- professors in universities or bureaucrats or globalists. And if it's on the left, it might be uh, Wall Street, uh, particularly Wall Street, but uh, Wall Street and its interests as, as represented by people in, um, you know, lobbyists in Congress and that kind of thing. So you mentioned that there is a difference between the the uh, Trump brand of populism and the Bernie Sanders brand of popu- uh, populism, both of which sprung forth in 2016 initially. I mean, obviously, Bernie Sanders has been at this for a very long time, but on a national scale. Let's start with Bernie. Uh, What are the defining elements that make Bernie Sanders brand of populism uh, unique? Well, I think, you know, the the Sanders uh, campaign really took off in 2016, partly because he identified himself as being outside of the system, outside of the really outside of the Democratic Party, as well as outside of the political system altogether, even though he's he's a sitting senator from Vermont. He the the language he used was that uh, that the American people were unrepresented, that they were left out, that increasingly uh, the, the billionaire class, uh, Wall Street, uh, and their lackeys in, in Congress uh, and elsewhere were uh, were shutting out average Americans from um, from the basic needs that they you know ought to ought to have met, and so his call for um, universal health care or for free college education or for uh, much heavier taxation on the uh, on the rich or much stronger regulation of Wall Street we're always saying that you know uh, we're, we're, we're getting at something in in the electorate of people who felt kind of unrepresented and left out and felt like neither major party represented their interests so you remember he you know he, he's running against uh, Clinton and portraying her as uh, a consummate insider, uh, you know, someone who's connected to the political system, connected to the center of the Democratic Party, connected to uh, Wall Street interests, uh, and, and, and so and so he depicts his movement as being some, you know, outside of that and against that, and representing in, in an authentic way. Part of this always is, is not just about ideas, but about kind of. Um, let's call it maybe cultural performance. You know, something about Sanders that he, you know, his hair is kind of wild and a mess and his, you know, he, he, he um, you know, looks occasionally kind of disheveled and he speaks quite bluntly and plainly with the, uh, with the, you know, the accent of working class Brooklyn uh, in which he grew up. And there's something about that that is also key to populism. It's an idea of, of authenticity, of not being groomed, not being slick, not being... Uh, you know, kind of a popular, uh, you know, a politician is going to say whatever anyone wants to hear. Uh, it's that you actually speak from a position of being, um, uh, you know, a, a real tribune of the people, someone who is unvarnished, someone who speaks like the people, someone who um, is like them, a common person who has angers like them. So I think that those are all elements of, of the Sanders campaign that helped it ignite. And one thing about both Sanders and Trump, and we can talk about this with Trump as well, is that both these figures come into American politics at a moment when each party has been made a little bit 
uh, unstable. And partly it's, you know, the, the, the extraordinary wealth gap between the very richest Americans and everyone else, uh, um, you know, was, was kind of playing itself out in both parties, the, the, the uh, effects of this kind of thing. And so there's a way in which both Trump and Sanders uh, spoke to some sense of uh, feeling that there's, the, there's something not working about the system, something broken about the system that they, um, uh, that they could um, redeem in some sense. Yeah, and, and you know what's what's fascinating about it is that they both sprung up at a time when, as the election began, I know myself, and it seemed to be at least the common wisdom amongst the polls, was that this was going to be the most establishment of all elections. It was going to be an, a, another Bush versus Clinton, right? This was going to be yeah. a, 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 a legacy election uh, amongst you know one family that had already put two presidents into office and one family that had put one or a couple that had put one of them in. Uh, uh, and then on you know both sides, you see this tremendous kind of groundswell of energy. Now, the, the, before we move totally on from Bernie, you know, the fact that Bernie is this disheveled guy and speaks in these very blunt, plain, uh, you know, well-practiced sound bites from his years and years of saying the exact same thing, which therefore in and of itself connotes authenticity, that has to be, you know, attractive to people that are looking across the stage and seeing Hillary Clinton. Like, that, this has to be a reaction to the idea that if populism is defined by its enemies, she was the enemy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but defined by its enemies and defined by some sense of crisis. You know, populist politicians always uh, require the language of crisis and, and, and that, that, that something has, uh, has gone very wrong. And that's what provides openings for populists to, um, you know, to get traction. It's got to be credible. You can't, you know, they can't just make up crises that don't have any actual bearing on on everyday life. But there's a there's a way in which he um, Sanders was able to say uh, that Clinton only represented the kind of, you know, the same corporate line that uh, the centrist Democratic Leadership Council line that are that Bill Clinton had represented, that she had represented within the Obama administration, that things were not necessarily uh, uh, going to get that much better or that much different, uh, that, that she had no, nothing really new to offer except for more of what the Democrats had offered for uh, years prior to this, and that uh, she really represented a, a, you know, a right-wing drift, a long-term right-wing drift in the party. So what he was able to say was that I represent something outside the system that, that, uh, that you know, represents where the people where people really are and what their real needs are and what their real anxieties are and what are the things that are troubling them at night. And there's a way, you know, that he can say that and speak in, in kind of plain terms. It's the linking kind of a, you know, kind of a cultural performance with specific policy positions that does that work. A lot of people are up to their eyeballs in debt, you know, and they uh, are not sure how they're going to take care of uh, their health care bills. I'm not sure how they're going to retire. I'm not sure how they're going to um, uh, pay for their mortgages in the you know in a you know in the kind of lingering effects of the 2008 recession. So there's a way that that Sanders could uh, uh, play on that in, in deeply in an American tradition of saying uh, you know we're the majority of the people. We I represent uh, what, what you really need as as Americans 
and together as Americans we can overcome and defeat this uh, um, small elite of both parties. You know, he populists often say that you know both both leaders of both parties uh, that there's you know a very little difference between them, and that's partly what Sanders said as well. But you know, if you vote for Clinton, she's not going to give you anything different than um, than uh, a Republican president would give you. Well, obviously, he came very close, but was unable to secure the nomination of the Democratic Party. Hillary Clinton then goes on and does lose to another populist in Donald Trump. So give me the differences between the Bernie Sanders populism and the Trump populism. Well, you know, uh, Trump also comes in at this moment of uh, kind of felt crisis, uh, I think also ultimately in the wake of the 2008 uh, Great Recession. You know, in the in the primaries, the people that he drew into the party um, often were Republicans who either people who had not had been unaffiliated with either party or Republicans who rarely voted. People who were was le- this was less so in the general election, but in the primaries, he pulled in um, you know, lower middle class and working class uh, whites, not only whites but largely whites, uh, who felt that you know, in, in poll after poll, uh, these voters in the primaries felt that they um, were politically uh, disempowered, that they were economically vulnerable, uh, and that in many cases they uh, felt as white people demographically um, uh, threatened by people of color. So you had this kind of way in which, uh, you know, he's been, he, he lays out a cast of enemies. At the time, it was Mexicans coming across the border, it was uh, Democratic politicians who were letting this happen. Uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, globalists who were making deals, you know, uh, uh, multilateral trade deals that were hurting American workers and sending jobs overseas. Uh, it was China. And so he had, you know, kind of a different set of uh, people who he kind of demonized as the figures that were that were really against everyday plain spoken American people. He also has a slightly different idea of who these who, who the people are, you know, the, the people is always kind of an, an invention in some sense. It's a concept. But, uh, you know, his was, you know, kind of a, a specific group. And he drew on, like Sanders, he drew on people's sense of anger and disempowerment and sense that the system was broken in some way. And I think probably even more so in the case of Trump, people were, you know, knew that nominating him out of that field of, you know, 16 other Republican candidates was really lobbing a bomb, uh, you know, at um, people who seem to be representing mainstream wealthy interests of the Republican Party. And so in that sense, um, you know, that his, the composition of his um, of his voters changed in the general election to, you know, Republicans as a whole. But early on, it was the sense of, uh, you know, he would say he would say to people, you're losers. You lose all the time. We lose all the time. You, you know, he came, when he came to speak here in Oregon, he, uh, you know, he, t- he talked about how uh, the, the people who he was going to represent are people who uh, had been made into failures repeatedly and had nothing to show for their for their lives and their efforts. And um, which is kind of a strange kind of populism, a populism of calling people losers, which is it used to be that populist uh, politicians would with bestow nobility on the common people. But in some ways, Trump kind of berated them as, as uh, um, you know, as losers. But he also, at the same time, like when he spoke here, he you know, pulled out a list of, uh, of pulp mills and uh, uh, timber mills that had closed down as a result of um, 
agreements associated with NAFTA and said that these, these, this is the reason why you're out of work. This is the reason why your economies are going downhill here in Oregon. And, you know, it had this, um, you know, it had an effect on people here who saw, you know, were in the audience nodding their heads, many of whom were former timber workers or had family members who had been laid off the timber industry. And, and so there was a sense that, um, you know, and then he also said, at the same time, as he's doing that, he attacks the media and he points at the, all the cameramen and reporters and calls them the enemy and everybody turns around and shakes their fist at them. And so, you know, that's, it's also a performance. Uh, and also, you know, his kind of, his, his uses of profanity, his kind of, uh, his bluntness, his anger, his belittling, his attacking, is also a certain kind of uh, performance of authenticity, an idea that he's like everybody, you know, he's like an everyday person who will, he was not, who will not respect the norms, you know, the kind of semi-aristocratic norms of office of the presidency, but instead will, um, uh, will, will speak in blunt and, uh, blunt and plain language. So one of the things that I kind of recognize with, with the Trump campaign was that everything that you just mentioned were all hobby horses on the right in in AM radio and Fox News. These were things that had been, you know, uh, the, the 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 great sucking sound of jobs in New Mexico was a Perot line, right? Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Pat Buchanan ran uh, on you know anti NAFTA uh, trade agreements and and a lot mm -hmm. of this kind of stuff, and that had in the intervening decade plus kind of been shuffled to the side that that was a, 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 an opinion that had its moment and sure it would be something that you'd hear on Rush Limbaugh and, and maybe you'd hear on, uh, you know, past 8 p.m. on Fox News. But when it really came down to it, uh, there was not something that, that, that the White House could do that that ship had kind of sailed. Is there part of this uh, populism that is built into the idea that you were lied to. You were led astray. If if you made a mistake, you can now have redemption by backing this revolution. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you're right to point to 1992 as a you know as a key moment in the development of right wing populism, and you know certainly it, there's elements of it in, in uh, the Perot campaign, and you know, and as you said, Pat Buchanan runs on in opposition to free trade agreements. And uh, to uh, open immigration, those are his you know, two of his key things. And you know, these actually—I mean, that was also—it it was really—it was—it was the failure of the Buchanan campaign that I think baked into the you know uh, uh, internal logic of you know politics writ large. That all right, well, it didn't work in '92. How's it going to work in 2016? Well, you know, part of it is that these things are not, you know, party elites don't always control things, which is interesting. You know, after, you know, uh, you know, you have, if, if you look at kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of the populist right end of the uh, Republican Party, you have the, you know, the Goldwater and the Wallace campaigns in the 60s. And that produces a slightly more moderate figure in Richard Nixon, who also uses populist language, but not to the same kind of um, uh, degree. And then, you know, uh, Nixon as you know, governs partly as a liberal and uh, produces a lot of bitterness among, um, uh, you know, among, you know, right wing uh, you know, activists in the electorate who then cast around in the 70s to try to find someone who will really be an authentic um, representation of the populist right. And they they end up drafting Reagan in 76 and then again in 1980. 
by the time he gets 1980, he's you know they've developed a an elaborate you know structure of new right uh, activists and organizations. And then after eight years of Reagan and four years of of uh, George H. W. Bush, conservatives have be, you know have become the the establishment, not the outsiders anymore. And you have uh, you know people who are now identified as as neoconservatives, uh, many of them former Democrats, who are the major advisors to Reagan and and, and to Bush. And this produces a sense of kind of alienation and outsiderness from, you know, kind of populist right-wing activists in the electorate. And, you know, at the top as well, Pat Buchanan is able to tap into this energy, also bring in, uh, you know, white supremacists, people who had been backing David Duke uh, in 92, then flipped over to Buchanan. And he had surprising successes early on. Uh, You know, it it finally um, dwindles out, as you said, but it was enough that he... Um, uh, you know, got a prime speaking spot at the Republican convention that year. But then that kind of, you know, that, that kind of dies out, as you said, for reasons that you said. But then after uh, eight years of Bush and kind of exhaustion with, with two wars, uh, and then four years of, of, um, of Obama, the, um, Republican, the Republican far right is able to kind of begin to muster energy, you know, partly through the Tea Party movement, probably through, you know, uh, partly through the people who fund the Tea Party movement from above, Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers and other people. And some of this turns into an energy that, um, uh, that you know, right-wing activists, intellectuals can begin, you know, uh, using in the Trump campaign. But the difference between Trump and Buchanan is that Buchanan was a, you know, was a you know, kind of fully ideological right-wing populist thinker, uh, um, speechwriter, um, cable news post, and... Um, uh, and candidate, you know, Trump was in a, it partly, a, you know, he's kind of a, um, a dubious real estate uh, magnet, but also an entertainer. He spends years on The Apprentice, you know, focus grouping every week what worked well and what didn't work. And in that sense, he's a little bit like Reagan. He spent many years on the road as kind of a motivational speaker for um, for GE. And, you know, it, it Trump was able to kind of make a more kind of an electrified version of Buchanan's politics. Also, in a moment when the political system has changed a little bit, and there are more kind of political crises and political bumps in the road, and things that Republicans aren't able to address. You know, after after Romney loses, they have a um, you know the Republican Party comes together and it decides that they they release a, what they call the autopsy report, saying that it's time for Republicans to think more about women and think more about people of color and think more about LGBT people and uh, you know, this side and the other, but without actually really mentioning the issue of class at all, economic class at all. And so there's a kind of a direction that the Republican Party wants to take itself. And Trump flips that right over and says, uh, we are going to target working class whites and um, we're going to do it partly by demonizing these other people and kind of like takes it exactly in the other direction that Republicans said. But partly it's that, you know, a lot of Republicans were no longer really delivering to uh, many white people who thought that their whiteness had indemnified them from losing their homes or from, you know, from uh, having declining or stagnant wages for many years or from not getting health care. And Trump spoke to those people in a way that uh, it's in a language and in a logic that said these people, these globalists are the problem. These immigrants coming across the border are the problem. These uh, uh, um, sneaky Democrats are the problem. There is a cultural crisis here and an economic and a political crisis that I alone can solve for you uh, because I represent, um, you know, the, again, the common people. And together we are going to 
um, where the battering ram smashed the gates of of uh, elite rule. And you know, so so phrases like Steve Bannon's "drain the swamp" become very popular in the campaign campaign trail. Trump didn't really care about that line much one way or the other himself, but it would you know that one and that and build the wall became the the chance that people love to say over and over on the campaign trail. And it's partly because each one of them spoke to an element of populist politics. One was we're going to keep these people out, these welfare abusing criminal immigrants in the way they saw them. Uh, and the other is that we are going to take the lobbyists out of, out of Washington and we're going to drain the swamp. Uh, so those are, you know, those are kind of the, um, the elements that I think that allowed this outsider to beat 16 other candidates, uh, you know, not, or, you know, on the, Republican stage uh, to uh, propel himself. And in so doing, has really altered the um, kind of the long-term trajectory of the party in a way. I think both parties are probably under uh, um, uh, kind of populist reinvention in some sense. Oh, I think 100%. I mean, if you look at, you know, not only the fact that uh, if right now, depending on where you're looking at and you know, when you look at the real clear politics average, it's either Joe Biden about as establishment uh, a new Democrat as you can get. But if the other acceptable mainstream candidate is somebody like Elizabeth Warren, then the populist hallmarks of Bernie's revolution in 2016, not to mention Bernie being up there himself, is certainly there, uh, uh, even down to the fact that, you know, Andrew Yang is running as somebody that is outside of the box comparatively. Yes, and claiming that he's, you know, and Andrew Yang a little bit like, um, you know, uh, uh, in kind of classic old populist style, um, you know, offering to just hand hand money out to people. Yeah, <laughs> he's gonna, give, you know, give away money. But you know, Warren also has a certain kind of populist uh, legacy as well. Um, the legacy that kind of runs through, you know, Louis Brandeis, but really goes back to the 19th century populist in its in terms of anti-monopolism. Anti-monopolism was was really the, the, the probably the key thing about uh, the, the People's Party um, of the early 1890s, and that's I think that actually that distinct tendency or tradition is what she kind of brings forward in a in a, in a way that I think also echoes you know popular sentiment. Absolutely. All right. Joe Lowndes has been our guest. He's got a new book out that you should go get. It is co-authored with Daniel Martinez, Hosang, and is entitled Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race, and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Joe, for, for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Oh, thanks for having me, Justin. It was a lot of fun. Politics! All right, folks. Been a while. Let's go ahead and do a little but your emails. You can always send me a note, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Rudy writes, I've been catching up on the last few weeks of PX3. How likely is impeachment at this point? Are we putting a ring on this finally, or are we still treating it as the side piece everybody knows about? As far as impeachment goes... Uh, we're at the phase where we're like putting up pictures of us together on Instagram and like all of our friends that have known about it for a while are commenting like finally, or like the eyes emoji. Like that's where we're at with impeachment. It's definitely happening. We are weeks away from it being Facebook official unless something crazy happens. As for removal, 
That's still very remote. That's like we're a member of a really, really, really rich family, and I'm trying to convince the patriarch that he really should give his blessing to me marrying this stripper. Like, that's how likely it is. Maybe the stripper's very charming and, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the father relents. It's possible. Anything's possible. But the chances are remote. Sean writes, do you think that the Florida attorney general is much, much, much more Trump friendly than New York's? Is Trump's move really about keeping private stuff private or a substantial tax bill reduction? You know, this is one of those sometimes a a cigar is just a cigar. If you haven't caught up on this story, Donald Trump has changed his official permanent residence from Trump Tower in New York to Palm Beach. And it's spurred a million different questions. Is this for tax purposes? Uh, A reminder that Florida is a homestead law, meaning that even if you were sued out of existence, you can never have your property taken from you uh, if you are a Florida resident. So there's a lot swirling around. I I tend to believe he just spends a lot more time in Palm Beach And as somebody who grew up in South Florida, old people from New York moving down is kind of the bedrock that that region has been built on. So it's not uh, too shocking that he moved down there. I, I, I would take this one at face value. That being said, the attorney general in Florida, no doubt, will be far more friendly to Trump considering the... Governor there, Ron DeSantis, owes his career to Trump. And finally, Ron writes, obviously what happened to Katie Hill shouldn't have happened, but I call BS on the misogyny thing. If you flip the gender, the result would have been the same. So I agree and disagree with you. I I, I agree that if it were a guy and he had likely been sleeping with somebody on his congressional staff in a post-Me Too world after the new rules had been put in, then yes, he would have also been run out of uh, D.C. on a rail and would have had the leadership not defend him. However, it is reductive to assume that men are affected by revenge porn as much as women are. Certainly this happens. There are dong pics that get circulated. But there is an institutional level of naked lady pics. Like that just happens at a at a more frequent clip. So I agree with you with the end result of her leaving. Yes, there were rules that I think both genders would have been kicked out on. But the titillation... And I mean more the Daily Mail story than I do the Red State story, the one with her naked smoking a bong. That's where this story gets more explosive. Would she have been run out if it was just that Red State story? Probably. Because I think the House opened up their investigation after the Red State story and before the Daily Mail story. But that's my take. Misogyny does factor into it. All right. That about wraps it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic 
$10 tier. We've got Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, Brad, and a new member to the club, Adam. If you want to join them or get on our $3 club, which gets you two bonus episodes per week, one on Monday, one on Thursday, then head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Of course, another reminder that you can sign up for my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Music has been provided by Valesco and Trop Killers, and you can follow me at Justin R. Young everywhere. You want to talk politics 24-7? Head on over to my Discord, bit.ly slash J-U-R-Y Discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Again, bit.ly slash jury Discord. Totally free chat room for fans of this show. Till next time, this is your old boy Justin Robert Young saying uh, politics has three names and some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>